0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Mindful's Point of View. I'm Barry Boyce, Editor-in-Chief of Mindful. I'm talking today with Patricia Rockman, MD, Director of Education and Clinical Services for the Center for Mindfulness Studies in
1: Toronto. Hello, Pat. Hi, Barry.
0: So the main mission of the Center for Mindfulness Studies I think could be summed up as mindfulness for mental health would that be fair to say
1: Matt? absolutely that would be fair to say
0: so mindfulness means a lot of things to a lot of people these days as it's become very popular mm-hmm. why is mindfulness for mental health uh, important in your view
1: well I think for a few reasons I mean we can think of The use of mindfulness for mental health from the standpoint of prevention. So, teaching people to work with their attention to be able to uh, work to regulate their emotions and their mood. We can also use it uh, for treatment. As we see with mindfulness-based programs such as mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, Mindfulness-based stress reduction, mindfulness-based relapse prevention for addictions, and so on. I mean, you know, it's being offered for uh, people with bipolar and so on. So that would be more from the treatment end, although, you know, with respect to things like depression, more of the evidence is around preventing relapse. But there's increasing evidence to support its use for um, acute care as well, as long as it's not too severe. Within the context of treatment, we're looking at interrupting or disrupting things like uh, rumination or obsessive thinking. We can think of certain mental health problems as being uh Thought-disordered behaviors, if you like, we can think of thoughts as behaviors or we can think of them as sensations. But when we get stuck in patterns of thinking or even stuck in difficult emotional states or impulsive behavioral states, mindfulness can be used to disrupt these.
0: So one of the concerns that sometimes gets expressed is that um, mindfulness is uh, seems to be touted or understood by some people as a replacement, a kind of panacea or cure all. Um, how do you see mindfulness fitting into the the full uh, armamentarium, as they say, of um, of treatments and interventions?
1: Well, I definitely don't think it's a panacea. I think there are Um, I think it's one of the, I don't really like this word, but I think it's one of the tools uh, that we can use for um, working with mental disorders. It's, you know, in the CANMAT guidelines, it's used for depression uh, and, you know, it's been as an adjunct treatment. And um, I think that it's something we use in addition to, but not necessarily replacing. It's been, the evidence for its use right now in terms of say working with preventing depressive relapse is that it's um, equivalent to maintenance antidepressant use. And there's some early work uh, that's showing that it's um, equal to CBT for preventing relapse. But this doesn't mean that you, that it's good for everything. And there are definitely some at least relative contraindications, although the research isn't so great around that right now. But there are there are people I definitely wouldn't use it for. And I don't think it's any better than medication. But what we can say is it can be a useful alternative for people who don't want to take meds.
0: Um, some people get concerned that uh, people who need medication will be persuaded to get off their medication and that, They can so called just do mindfulness. And, you know, some people have said that's dangerous.
1: Well, I think that's true. I mean, uh, the work that we do, we have no desire to persuade people to get off medication. And when they come to our groups, um, such as mindfulness based cognitive therapy or in mindfulness based stress reduction, we tell people not to go off their medication uh, without, you know, instruction from their healthcare provider. Because A, if they do that, and something goes wrong, or if something changes, we don't know what caused it. And B, they may really need it. And I think that, you know, medication, uh, for a lot of people, they have ideas that they're weak if they take medication, so they would prefer not to. But there are definitely times when people need to be taking medication and, and it can be difficult to know when that is. But uh, definitely it has its place as does mindfulness but neither are a panacea
0: right so can you say uh, a bit about what the center does you, i know you teach clinicians as well as the general public and mm-hmm. and also a frontline uh, mental health workers uh, who work in groups in, 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 in uh, neighborhoods in toronto can you
1: say a little bit about that yeah so we our work has really three arms the heart of the center is to bring mindfulness based programs to those with mental health problems as well as to those with um, affordability and access issues we have a community program in which we serve the um, those who are quite disadvantaged, people who are homeless, people who um, may have other difficulties around access. And that program is donation-based and grant-based. We've been working in um, a lot of areas of the city and we also have a project in the Philippines. Um, We work with an organization called Parkdale Recreation, um, sorry, Parkdale Activity and Recreation Centre for the homeless. And within the context of that program, so we've done service delivery and we've also trained frontline workers both to manage their own stress through mindfulness and to deliver to their peers. And we then um, also received a grant from Trillium, the Trillium Foundation, to teach frontline workers how to do mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. We also have a separate arm in which we deliver services to the public who can afford to pay, um, in which we have clinicians delivering mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, mindfulness-based stress reduction, and now more recently, um, mindful self-compassion. And uh, we stream people uh, into those different programs depending upon need. And then we, what we're also really involved in is the training of healthcare providers. We have a certification program in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, and more recently in mindfulness-based stress reduction, in which we have some reciprocity with the University of California, San Diego, around because they also have a professional institute, and we have recently with the mindfulness-based stress reduction uh, certificate adopted the protocol developed by susan woods and we use Zindel siegel's uh and his cohorts protocol for training in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and that's been going very well we offer a lot of training in that area so uh, a lot of clinicians have have
0: trained in um, various mindfulness-based interventions uh with the center
1: yeah at this point yeah
0: um parkdale is a is a large diverse neighborhood in uh, west toronto um, would you say that over time the work there could become a testbed for this kind of um bringing mindfulness coping skills into the street as it were
1: yeah absolutely i we have programs that have been going on there for a few years now and Uh, Lisa Surzwell, who works with the center, and other clinicians have done quite a bit of work in this area, working with um, various groups and peer groups. And there's an ongoing group at um, the Parkdale Activity and Recreation Center. And I know that Tita Anganko, uh, one of the founders of the center, has been involved in developing a collective impact and program in the area of mental health so, and that's, that's very much in, involved with the community. So I would say, yes, absolutely, that's one of the intentions.
0: So I know that um, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy includes a um, significant component of inquiry. It does. And um, could you say what that means and, and why, why that's important in terms of mental health for people who are diagnosed perhaps, but also for those who are undiagnosed I mean, we all have mental health issues of one kind or another.
1: So I think this gets back to thinking about what are the intentions of working with mindfulness as a modality in this area or working with mindfulness generally. And while There is no question that relaxation is a component of mindfulness. I would say that within the context of working with mental health or mental disorders, what we're more concerned with are a few things. One is awareness, increasing awareness, intentionally working with attention to learn how to direct attention, to explore experience, and to be able to shift attention when necessary. We're also working to regulate emotions, and we're also trying to learn to regulate our behavior, all in the service of um, increased health, and I would say um, increased compassion for self and others, and increased functioning. So within the context of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy per se, The first few weeks of the program are about awareness building and training attention to work with the body as well as thoughts and emotions. So really getting to know the full nature of your experience. And then the latter weeks of the program are about learning to turn toward difficulty To be able to build distress tolerance for difficulty versus engaging in uh, the kinds of avoidance strategies that we tend to use when we're faced with things we don't like or maladaptive coping responses. So, we're trying to increase choice about how we might skillfully respond to difficulty rather than reacting automatically or engaging in habitual automatic patterns that may be harmful or at least not helpful to us. So inquiry then is part of that process. The guidance of the meditative practices and the cognitive exercises entail guiding people to work with their attention in a variety of ways and also to begin to separate or parse their experience into its components of thoughts, emotions, body sensations, behaviors or impulses to act. And by doing so, we begin to make difficult situations that are often overwhelming more manageable because we can learn to intervene with mindfulness into various aspects of our experience. So, for example... Let's say you're driving in your car and somebody cuts you off in traffic and you might normally get really angry, get all of your sympathetic nervous system fired up, start banging on the horn, and you don't even realize that you've done this and then you're in a bad mood for the rest of the day. So mindfulness is really working to try to help people to recognize when this whole kind of cycle might start up and how they might begin to interrupt that and then what they might do next. So it's not really, in my opinion, to get rid of reactivity, but rather, or a bad mood or a low mood or anxiety, but rather what do you do when these things start to show up and to learn to recognize early warning signs or symptoms or signs before they take hold so that you have more options about what to do next. So it's a long-winded way of then getting to the inquiry. So inquiry is um, a dialogue a, an interactive process, a reflective process on an experience that has just occurred. If we understand that what we're trying to do in these programs is enhance people's ability to be with their direct experience versus what we normally do, which is we immediately have interpretations, ideas, conclusions, judgments, um, about our experience. We move very fast away from the direct experience. If mindfulness is trying to help us to stay close to this, then inquiry is partly designed to help people to be able to enhance their capacity to reflect on the unfolding nature of experience and learn to track that experience without running off into storytelling or narrative or their ideas and conclusions. So we're trying to enhance people's ability to um, develop a language of experience, a vocabulary of experience, whether that's describing their sensations, being able to describe their thoughts versus analyzing them, being able to name emotions, you know, in an attempt to manage them better and make them less um, overwhelming and to begin to see how the body is a source of information and a place that holds the sensorial correlates of emotion. So we're not so locked up in our thinking, but rather we are getting we are getting access to our moment-to-moment experience.
0: So when you say the sensor, sensorial correlates of emotion, you mean something like you, 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 you begin to understand, you begin to notice your chest tightening, for example, rather than just have, oh, I'm pissed off.
1: Yes, exactly. Exactly. So maybe that's the first thing you notice is chest tightening. And, or maybe the first thing you notice are your thoughts, or maybe you, the first thing you notice is the naming of the emotion. But you, um, if you know, if you begin to identify the physical components of the experience, you can then begin to learn to bring your attention here and begin to explore this. So inquiry is designed to help people begin to understand the how, what, where, and when of experience, but not the why. Because the why pitches us into cognition and into thinking about and narrating our experience. And this is not to say that these are bad things because without, you know, our prefrontal cortex and ability to judge and to plan and to have a sense of self, we would just be really chaotic. But if we're too focused in this, way of being in the world, what, you know, Zendol Siegel and others call doing mode, then we can become really rigid. So by learning to attend to our moment-by-moment experience, we have another place from which to witness experience and also act upon it. But if you were only focused on your moment-to-moment experience, you'd never get anything done. You'd just be super chaotic. This is the kind of thing Norm Farb, a neuroscientist in Toronto, talks about.
0: So... A lot of what we do in trying to work as lay people, as it were, in our own thoughts, as mm-hmm. our own mental health counselors, is to try to control or to try to shift the narrative. Right. And it even seems a lot of therapies are like that. And perhaps some people who get into teaching mindfulness bring that over into it. Can you distinguish The controlling approach and the narrating approach, or they, you know, trying to shift the narrative from what you're talking about as inquiry?
1: So, you know, a lot of therapy and a lot of our behaviors as human beings are directed at problem solving, right? And we need this. Yeah. We need this. And we're also creatures who seek an explanation, we want to know why things happen. And, you know, if we didn't do this, we wouldn't, we probably would have died out a long time ago. You know, we wouldn't, we would have frozen to death or something. We wouldn't know how we would never build houses and so on. But this kind of behavior, this is the, from the perspective of mindfulness, does not necessarily serve us very well when we are ruminating on a problem or when we're really anxious. So inquiry begins with the question, what did you notice? in reference to a formal practice, because this is how we begin to practice it. So what did you notice? Oh, I noticed that I would try to bring my attention to the sensations of breathing, and then my thoughts were immediately being pulled to thinking about what I have to do tomorrow. And then I would drag my attention back to the sensations of breathing, and then they would go again. And then inquiry would then, we would comment on that. Okay, so you noticed the habitual movement of attention, and then your intentional choice to drop back to the object of focus in this moment, which was breathing. And in this way, people start to realize that they have some self-efficacy or agency and with awareness and deliberation, they can start to begin to actually choose where they direct their attention and learn how to do this versus just simply being caught up in, you know, immersed in our thinking as truth
0: that's wonderful a group of uh, researchers came out with a widely publicized paper in the uh, in perspectives on psychological science uh called mind the hype and it's about hype and well first of all in the media generally but also with researchers or, or clinicians uh over promising the benefits of mindfulness it also talks about Mindfulness programs perhaps not being as sensitive to the possibility of adverse events or the possibility that somebody who had pre existing trauma um, could be triggered or a pre existing condition. Yeah. Um, and not just by um, overly in- intensive retreats, but even, uh, you know, uh, a little bit of introductory practice. They. So, what's your thoughts on uh, hype and and the possibility of actually uh, adverse mental health uh, effects uh, coming out of practicing mindfulness.
1: Well, I definitely think that the adoption of mindfulness into the culture outweighs the evidence to support its use. I think that's true. You see it in the workplace, you see it in education. There's not a lot of evidence to support its use there. The most evidence to support its use is in healthcare. And then even within that context, it's limited. So mindful self-compassion, the research is very early. The research in MBSR and MBCT, while there's more of it, you know, if you talk to people like Zendel Siegel and others, you know, there's an increasing push for a need to have studies that are comparing mindfulness-based programs with active controls, you know, not just treatment as usual or weightless controls because, you know, there's, it's important to start to find out what are the variables that are making a difference. And in fact... Is it the mindfulness or is it something else? You know, I think it's still early. It's still early days. And so I think it's true. It's easy to start to overpromise what it can do. And for whatever reason, I mean, I have my own ideas about why mindfulness has entered the culture in this huge wave. You know, people really are adopting it and gravitating toward it. So I think there is a lot of hype. I think it's true. And um, around the overpromising and the risks... I will say that at the center, we engage in um, a fairly detailed intake process with all of our participants. We have an orientation program. We ask a lot of questions in our interviews about, you know, previous history of suicide, trauma, psychosis, and all of that sort of thing. We do tell people that if they have unprocessed trauma, they probably shouldn't be in the group. If they're too dysregulated, they shouldn't be in the group. If they're too severely depressed, they shouldn't be in the group. We tell them that if they start to deteriorate in any way, they need to let us know. If they're going to drop out, they need to let us know. And we really work very hard to make sure that people who come to our programs have um, an additional health care provider or counselor or therapist of some kind, because we can't take responsibility for them beyond the eight weeks that we're with them. And... I have seen people get somewhat worse and they've had to drop out. People with really severe anxiety who have a lot of somatic symptoms, sometimes, yeah, it can make them worse. Or people who have trauma sometimes can start to have flashbacks. So you have to really keep a close eye on these people. And if they start to get worse, you either have to have them drop out or you have to modify the practices and what you're doing with them. But it doesn't happen that often. I will say
0: well I think the you know um, there's no no risk-free interventions of any kind and and um, you know sometimes part of getting well is some disruption yeah um, we we've, we've always said that that mindfulness teachers do need to have some kind of Hippocratic oath that you know while they have people under they have to see that in their teaching they have people under their care and while they're under their care, they have to pay a lot
1: of attention and take responsibility for that. Yeah.
0: Um, you know, not just, the, you were talking about the intake but also paying attention to people during the course.
1: Oh, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Because I, I think that the main concern, and it's a valid one, is the kind of magical thinking. Yeah. That this is an automatic process. Hey, man, mindfulness made a big difference for me. It's just, it's gonna do the same for these people, Yeah. rather than looking at each case and paying attention person by person to what's going on.
1: You know, when I train healthcare providers, I really want them to understand why they're doing what they're doing. I want them to understand the rationale. If they make changes to the protocol, I want them to have a really good reason for it. And I want them to bring their critical minds to the process. I'll often say we're not trying to create mindful idiots. You know, people talk about non-judgment and what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that you stop discerning when to do the right thing, whatever that is. It doesn't mean we actually stop evaluating you know, otherwise, then you would just walk out in front of a bus, you know, because you were not being judgmental. So I think that you're right. And one of the things at the center, particularly with the mindfulness based cognitive therapy, it is a clinical intervention. And so, you know, we do have clinicians who are governed by their respective colleges and associations offering that modality.
0: Well, I think, you know, on the non-judgment piece, I mean, that's a very important one to break down, what what that term might mean in terms of mindfulness. And I think you were talking about it earlier. Mm-hmm. It, it's almost maybe more accurate to say it's a suspe- a temporary suspension of, of judgment, even a particular kind of judgment.
1: Yeah. There's
0: sort of a temporary suspension of problem-solving, to give you enough room to, to observe before you try to fix. Um, but it, you're never going to remove, hopefully (laughs) your ability to discern problems, to see ways forward. Uh, you know, that, it's a temporary suspension, really. Wouldn't Wouldn't you say something like
1: that? Yeah, and we're also trying to. Well, one of the things around judgment is we're really trying to help people reduce a harsh judgment against the self, which is you know a significant component of mental health problems. So we're trying to yeah, increase. That's very
0: interesting. I mean, part of the 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 problem solving impetus in that part of our. Brain network can go on overdrive and always decide that the problem is me.
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. And this, what you're talking about, getting this space um, from our tendency to be immersed in experience, you know, decentering from our experience a little bit, developing this capacity to observe, to be a bit of a witness rather than be so caught up.
0: Yeah, decentering is interesting because often. People, you know, in the popular press particularly they talk about meditation as a centering. I actually find that less centralizing is what provides some perspective and relief. Is that what what decentering really Yeah,
1: because you know, we're trying to to at least my understanding of, of the term is we're trying to step back from our immersion in our experience where we are the experience but rather we want to be able to have the facility to witness experience to identify thoughts as thoughts emotions as emotions behaviors as behaviors rather than being them you know have them rather than be them so to speak i think and um and not believe everything you think, you know, have more options yeah. about how to deal with difficulty rather than from this, like, immediately reactive place um, where you don't well, have perspective, yeah. you know. Or I whether mean,
0: everything you think, too, <laughs> it comes from a lot of different places. Yeah. You know, it's helpful, for example, in terms of bias, if you can have a moment of seeing where something, you know, something emerging in your mind, you can... As you were saying earlier, you have a choice.
1: Yeah. Oh, do
0: I? Do I need to believe that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Like I mean, I think one of the things maybe why people think of it as centering, you know, because people talk about grounding, which is a term yes. I don't. I don't really like the term very much, um, but I think of it as. You know, when people talk about grounding, like being able to locate yourself where you are, for example, bringing attention to the soles of the feet. You know, I can feel my feet on the ground. Um, Or if we're focusing attention on the sensations of breathing, for example, or sensations of the body, we could think of this as centering. But its purpose is really to train attention to be able to be placed, explore, and move. And then we're training a kind of open and receptive attention. So this is another practice of training attention, right? To be able to have a step back from experience and be able to witness and catch things early. So they serve different functions. But, uh, yeah, that's kind of Yeah, I think
0: one can understand where where the notion of of centering would come from. Uh, You know, sometimes uh, what's talked about as grounding is, you might say, a little bit more... Bottom up processing yeah. and top down, where you actually have more sensory experience, sense of your body on yeah. the, on the ground, and um, which you know. And as we were talking at the very beginning, I think that's that that bit of stability is what enables the inquiry to take place.
1: Yes, absolutely. And then the last piece, just to come back to finish that off around the inquiry, uh, one of the things that's really important within the context of mindfulness training with inquiry is the integration and application to real world experience uh-huh. so that people understand how what they're doing on the chair or the cushion is relevant to everyday life and how they can apply what's learned because if that link isn't made, people won't use it.
0: Right. Um, yeah. If um, in um, training that, in the, in the training world, they call that transfer mm. you know,
1: that yes
0: Yeah. there 's a transfer from the training room into into life
1: yes, so we ask the question, how might this be useful? This way of paying attention to to staying well or to reducing depression or reducing stress, So we ask very specifically for people to contemplate and then try it with home practice, you know
0: well, I think that'll be one of the great frontiers of study of mindfulness is to uh, some longitudinal studies to see what can help people to um, you know have more uh, uptake of those habits in their life so I'd like to conclude Pat with just asking you to talk about um, you know do you in teaching do you witness and experience people uh, let's say, clicking into or discovering the power of inquiry? You know, how would you describe that? Because I'm sure that must be part of your motivation to keep doing this. Because it's, it's hard work.
1: Yeah, um, well, with respect to the professional training, uh, because they have to use it, like they have to actually learn to do it with their own clients, it's hard. It's difficult. It takes a long time. Um, some people have a natural affinity for it, but... For others, it takes a long time. And I think we're just really learning how to teach it. And then with our, the people who are in our groups, uh, participants, definitely you see a movement toward their insight and ability to be able to apply what they're learning. But they don't necessarily really understand what we're doing with respect to the inquiry. But the people that we're training to deliver, They do, but they struggle because I think inquiry really is a a contemplative dialogue, as Susan Woods would say, or I call it a relational practice. It's a mindfulness practice unto itself. And I think that for practitioners who are learning to deliver these programs, there's a big cognitive load initially when they're learning. And it takes them a while to be able to drop into the practice and use inquiry the way I think it's best used.
0: You said something wonderful there. I thought that you're still, we are, you said, still learning how to teach this. Mm. And um, maybe that's the best kind of response to concerns about hype and overpromising and integrity. You know, if we have a, if we in the mindfulness working actively in teaching mindfulness
1: that we have that awareness that we're learning as we go. Yeah. Once you think you've got it figured
0: out, then you become a uh, messiah, so to speak, or, or a proselytizer. You
1: yeah. Yeah, maintaining curiosity and uncertainty.
0: Cool. Well, I had a good time doing <laughs> yeah, this. me I too. <laughs> I hope the audience will.